Good morning, Bethel. Um, it is good to be with you all this morning. And um, it was good for us, for me, to uh, take time together to honor those who have gone before us. Um, I agree. It's a, it's a, I don't remember who wrote this, Amy Beth that wrote this in the chat, that it's not something that I grew up with as a practice, but I'm like, how did I not grow up with this? It's wonderful. Um, this morning, we remember and are reminded that we are not just here because of what we have surmounted in our own lives, though those trials may have been great. But we are here because of unpayable gifts and debts that we owe to those who have come before us. Their lives and their struggles, um, their love are our inheritance and they guide us today. And so we join the Jews and we say, may their memory be a blessing. This is in part why I continue to come back to the scriptures myself. Though I will admit to you that a few times this week, I thought to myself, are there any words that can or maybe should be said in a time of war? And you all will have to be the judge of that and judge you should. But I continue to come back to the scriptures because it tells us that this utterance, may her memory be a blessing, reminds us that the people of God from the very beginning of what we were supposed to be, a blessing. Now we know today that that can be far from the truth. I know, we know that the name of Jesus evokes terror in many Jews and Muslims alike. I'm often amazed that black folks can still look at a cross for all the ways it's been used as a tool of terror. And we know that the name Jacob or Israel is a name of terror for many Palestinians today. I know a lot of folks that just abandon the Bible or, or Christianity. And if that's you today, I understand. Our memory has not been a blessing. But for me, the Bible's heartbeat drums out God's life song for the difficult work of messianic peace that we all need. It is urgently concerned with all of its memories and various voices, with guiding people away from the impossibility of destruction of war, which we see unfolding today. For example, last time I preached to you all, I preached from the difficult passage of Matthew 25 about judgment. It comes right after the apocalyptic chapter of Matthew 24, where Jesus foretold the destruction that was coming if they were to continue in their ways. And when that day came, the best thing that could be done would be to flee to the mountains. The scripture tells us, the one on the housetop must not go down to take what is in the house. The one in the field must not turn to go get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For at that time, there will be great suffering. And we see that today. Jesus's words continues shaped by the memory of the law and prophets to warn us about the path that takes us to the place of unimaginable terror. The Bible's word for this is actually the word um, Gehenna, or as all the English translations unfortunately translate it as hell. 
Hell was the actual fiery valley that the kings of Israel made the children of their people walk through to try to secure power from other gods. And Jesus tells us that if we don't follow the witness and the memory of the prophets and the law, that it will take us to the fires of Gehenna. As I read it, the Bible's heartbeat drums out God's life song for the seemingly impossible work of peace that we all need. The law legislates ways of life that will bridle death. The prophets decry wickedness and call the rulers back to God's way of justice. And Jesus himself shows us the dangerous way of messianic peace, which is our life. What we are seeing right now in Israel-Palestine is Gehenna. It is everything that the Bible's memory is guiding the people of God away from and towards working on a real but difficult peace. The Bible trains us to say and to pray, God, give power and protect the vulnerable, regardless of their citizenship, regardless of which side of a border they fall on or what their beliefs are. And God, dethrone the wicked rulers who use people's lives as shields and bargaining chips, who force children to walk through the fires of Gehenna. God, we say, judge them. Break their teeth. Break the teeth of the greedy empires who feast like vultures on the prophets of war. Avenge the blood of Abel, God. We know that vengeance is yours, but God, please avenge the vulnerable. God's word, the Bible's memory, is living. It gives us enough light for us to see and discern which way we must walk in dark times. But it is also designed to be only that, a lamp for our feet. It is not a GPS system that lobotomizes us and tells us exactly what we have to do. No, it shows us that the hard work of peace requires us. It needs us. Might we learn to make hard peace by it? so that our memory might be a blessing. Today's scriptures remembers to us the name of five women. Their names are Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza, the five daughters of Zelophehad. Their father had died, they were unmarried, so they were probably young teenagers and they had no brothers. They, like women in any patriarchal system, ours notwithstanding, knew vulnerability. We can only imagine what their lives were like leading up to this episode that is remembered for us. Who of their kinsmen appeared like knights in shining armor to take care of their father's possessions after he had passed? Did Zelophehad's oxen, goats, and sheep begin to mysteriously disappear? How was Noah received as she tried to get her father's goats back? on which they all depended for milk. Did Zelophehad's servants continue to listen to Milka? After all, what did she know as a young teenage girl that she should tell us strong men how to care for the camels? Did these five sisters begin leaving two sisters with the tent to guard the remaining silver bulls that had been passed along down their line from Egypt? And how did the remaining three sisters arrange their bodies when they went to gather manna and quail, especially as they ventured outside their tribal camp, and especially among the Benjamites, whom the scriptures remember as hungry wolves, as ravenous as the men of Sodom and Gomorrah? 
These five sisters knew vulnerability and they know that the land they're about to possess is being given only to men's names based on the census that Moses and Eliezer just took of the people. No land, as the memory of Ruth and Naomi teach us, means no place to grow plants, no bread, no place for animals to feed, no milk. No land meant complete economic vulnerability to depend completely on charity, which the law connects with eventual servitude and slavery. And so what do these five teenage girls do? They hatch a plan. They decide that they are going to head to the very political center of the camp in front of all the male elders and all the leaders of the people and the male priests. We can imagine the five of them gathering around a campfire late at night as they hatched their plan. Hagla reminding them that the last time people had confronted Moses at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the land itself had opened up to swallow those who dared to question Moses. And these were leaders, these were men that Moses had the land swallow up. But I imagine Tirza saying, no, we have to go. So these five teenage sisters devise a strategic way to make their case for not being dispossessed. And they had to the center of their people's government to petition the Moses, the one who had delivered their parents and their parents' parents from Egypt with plagues, whom they probably had never met and loomed large in their imagination. He who makes water come from rocks, who with God tore down Pharaoh, who meets with Adonai Elohim face to face, these five girls head up to the tent of meeting and they confront Moses in front of all the tribal leaders, men of power. If this is not a vision of biblical womanhood, of courage that we should teach all of our children, I don't know what is. We ourselves should learn from the memory of these teenage girls. After listening to their case, the unthinkable happens. Moses, the lawgiver and the judge, realizes that he doesn't know how to adjudicate the case that they've brought before him. What they're bringing up to him just wasn't thinkable according to the law and culture that they had so far. So he takes it up before Adonai Elohim, God's self, and asks God what should be done. And this is how God responds to their lawsuit. God rules in their favor. God says, these girls are right. They need to be given land. But God doesn't stop there. God says, these young women have showed us the limits of the law. The law itself needs to be changed. Because of the courageous testimony of these five teenage girls, Adonai Elohim changes the Mosaic law. Now, we can't miss this. 
the Torah itself, God's law, enshrines in its own memory its own limits. Now, many of us have inherited an idea of the law as this crushing rule book that was supposed to establish ideal order, but failed in that it was unlivable, so Jesus came to break it for the people's life. Though we should note that Jesus says he does not come to break the law, but to fulfill it. But before that, I want to say these five girls actually precede Jesus by a millennia. It would be more accurate to say that Jesus was blessed and formed by their memory. And he learned from his ancestors here what it meant to fulfill the law. The law, the entire first five books, was not a crushing rule book that was too heavy to bear. After all, it wasn't just the rules, though they had their needed functions. It was also songs, names of ancestors preserved, construction manuals, and like we see here, memory of bodily testimony. And they together guided and kept the people on the good way of God's peace here on the earth. It didn't imagine a perfect, ideal society. What is wild about God's law is that it enshrines in its memory the lesson that the hard work of God's peace depends, at least in part, on risky testimony from vulnerable bodies that we will not be able to anticipate. Or let me say it clearer. We learn here that God's law does not imagine it can bring about peace by the letter of rules alone. God's peace depends on the risky testimonies of the vulnerable. And I don't want to make light of this with the cartoon images I put up earlier of turning red, though I love that. Because breaking the silence and giving vulnerable testimony is risky. America is not the kingdom of God. The testimony of the violated seem powerless in front of ravenous men. But today, God's word comes to us, and joining these sisters from our text today, I hear Audre Lord, who says, my silence did not save me, and your silence will not save you. So the question for us today are, is, what are the things that we have suffocated that need to be spoken? What are the testimonies of dispossession that need to be given voice? Because this is what God's peace depends on. While breaking silence is costly in our world in all kinds of ways, God's word teaches us today that we cannot wait around like the disciples in Acts 1, looking up to the sky, waiting for a savior that will descend, dropping hellish bombs on our enemies and establishing a utopia, or a Messiah that legislates a new law to be policed with death. No, God's word teaches us today that true peace is harder than those illusory promises. A true and lasting peace comes in part through our giving risky testimonies while afraid, and that is hard work. And it may not make sense, just like it didn't to the disciples fully, but it invites us to release our hope in false messiahs that promise peace through violence like Netanyahu or Hamas or the American state. 
and instead to place our hope in the living God. While these nation states may not hear the testimony of those who suffer, God hears the cries of the people. Those cries are not wasted. What words might the Spirit of God be stirring in you today? Now, ending there would be too easy, which the Bible anticipates and remembers for us. The story picks back up at a later time, and the clan leaders of the tribes of Manasseh, the tribe that these sisters belong to, begin to grow concerned. I imagine that they have begun to notice that boys from the other tribes are in their tribe's encampment more and more often, or at least they're noticing it more. They're not exactly sure. They begin to realize that if these girls get married though to another tribe, their land will become a permanent part of that other tribe's inheritance. And that they could be eventually gobbled up into extinction by another tribe. Maybe that's why there are more teenage boys strolling through their camps. Now, regardless of whether their fear is perceived or real, it leads to a growing alienation. Now that there are ways that other tribes can acquire more land, even circumventing the Jubilee laws. Yesterday's solutions for peace created new unanticipated problems for the future. Again, the Bible teaches us the limitations of the law, but it is not that we don't need the law. For in response to their petitions, God tells Moses that they're right. These teenagers will need to marry folks from their tribe. And we are told that Mala, Noah, Milka, Hagla, and Tirzah comply. Now, we could argue that this feels like such a failure, that at the end of the day, the tribe's interests won and restricted the freedom of choice for these teenage girls. We might be frustrated that God didn't just declare that land should also belong to women. After all, didn't the Apostle Paul say that there is no longer slave or free, male or female, Jew or Greek? Come on, God, get with Paul's program, we might secretly think. Things that you never thought you'd hear in a Bethel sermon. But what we learn from this passage is that the work of peace is hard. It continues. Peace cannot just be legislated once or won once and for all. But American society overall does tend to shape us to believe romantically that a righteous, just, and orderly society can be legislated once and for all. All it takes is an emancipation proclamation, a righteous ruling, a pen swipe to legislate a new order. We just then have to police all those pesky sinful bodies that won't comply with the perfect law. Or all it takes is just one civil rights movement, one man, or maybe one Christ for all on the cross. But the Bible, not least the Apostle Paul, tells us that this is not just naive, but this is dangerous. This kind of belief actually hides the power of sin and death, as our own nation's history clearly teaches us. The Apostle Paul writes lengthily on how putting that much faith in law forgets the law's limitations and weaknesses, even as it is a gift. It actually feeds the power of sin and death 
It is foolishly trusting in the dead ways of written codes, which does not feed God's peace. Instead, Paul says we are to work, work out our salvation. We are shaped in a society that believes that just getting our ideas right will fix the world. We like to pluck that quote from Paul and toss the rest of him. If only we declare more that we are all made in the image of God, all equal, things should change. But the Bible comes to us today and says that that is actually a dead end. It forms us to think, well, if we just get our ideas right, if we just shout the, loud, the, chant, the right chants loudest, if we're just on the right side of history, then it'll be good. But that kind of thinking paralyzes us in times like this because it's kind of hard to figure out what is right. It also closes our ears to certain concerns that we need to listen to if we are dedicated to working on God's peace. And I know myself, I myself have been confronted this week with the testimony of fear that Jews and Israelis feel, that I confess like my own heart has grown kind of calloused or cold or deaf to. But the word of God comes to us and says we need to listen to those testimonies too. We need to hold all of it in times that are impossible to be right, but where we still must work for peace. The Bible is less concerned with which side is right and which side is wrong. That is a game that it doesn't play. It preserves for us both of these accounts in its memory and what it looks like to work towards God's peace. It challenges us that if we are working with prophetic vision for intergenerational peace on the earth, who is right, who is wrong, and the undergirding question, well, who is to blame, really? Those are the wrong questions to ask. The question is, what does a true peace that allows for life require from us today? What testimony must we raise? And that peace is hard. It is messy. It requires transgressions of sides. And the Bible teaches us this, that peace will come from listening to testimonies, giving our testimony, and from slowly eroding the power of death. For a future that we all still pray, hope, long for, and need. The Bible gives us the language that we would recognize hostility and over generations turn historic enemies into friends by making reparations in all of the ruptures that we can see. God's law responds to the real concerns of the people. The Bible points us again to an economy that guards against predation. And not just in this text, but throughout the law and the prophets, the Bible comes over and over again and says, our economy, the economy of the people of God, cannot be one that preys on others. Do not take the land of others that I have not given. That's not for you. Don't start a war. That land is not yours. God's word calls for an economy that is not predatory. 
predation will not bring peace. Its memory instead teaches us that this will be difficult and hard work. But it is the work of the living God. It is the work of our ancestors and the memory of those of us that come today as a blessing. Today, we remember all who have died and we honor them. And we say with our Jewish kin, may their memory be a blessing. This phrase is a phrase that honors those who have gone before us, but it simultaneously charges us as well. These are the memories of the people of God for God's people today. They could not have imagined what we face, but they teach us to listen and to testify and to engage with the time that we have in the work of peace. May the memories of those who have gone before us, of these five daughters of Zelophehad, may they guide us so that our memory may too be a blessing.